Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for the events of this past week. We thank you how we've been able to see you working in our lives, protecting us, providing for us, growing us, changing us, stretching us, comforting us. Lord, we thank you that you are our living God. You are our Father, who we can turn to in every circumstance, in every situation, who we know will love us. Lord, we thank you for paying the price that we had no hope of ever paying to make a way so that we may be restored to you. We thank you for the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the turning point of history and the turning point of our lives. We thank you for your word that reveals to us truths that we need to know and that solidify for us the strength and power of Almighty God. So, Lord, I pray that you would open our ears and open our hearts to hear what you have for us this morning, that your truth would go forth today. Hearts would be changed, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In February, the 2018 Olympic Games were the focus for many in the world. Anybody watch those in February of this year? Uh, Ten years ago, the 2008 Summer Olympics took place in Beijing. Now who remembers those? (laughs) Ten years ago, 2008. In, In September of that year, 2008, I had just started my senior year of Bible college in Chicago. Podcasting had just begun a few years before that, but yet hadn't yet exploded into the mega influence that it is now. One night as I was listening to the radio, that was still a thing back then, I heard that Oprah Winfrey, whose show was based in Chicago, was planning a special broadcast at Chicago's famed Millennium Park where several of the medal-winning athletes such as Kobe Bryant, Nastya Lukin, and Michael Phelps were going to be featured. The best part about this announcement that I heard on the radio was that this event, which was going to take place the next day, was going to be free and open to the public. Since I was about 22 at the time and still cared about these kinds of things, I got the idea into my head that I wanted to go and get the chance to see these athletes in person and maybe even meet some of them. Thinking, this is Chicago, Millennium Park is going to be swamped, I'm going to get, go extra early to get a good spot. But also thinking, this is Chicago, I'm not going to leave campus while it's still dark by myself. <laughs> I managed to convince a few of my friends to go along with me. We left campus at 5 in the morning to get to Millennium Park before anyone else, taking a couple of L trains to get there. And before everyone else, we did arrive. We were so successful that we were definitely the first ones there, and we couldn't even get into the park yet. It was closed. We couldn't even get in yet. We spent the next four hours just hanging out, and when we could get into the park, the public section was so far away from the stage that we could barely make out who was who. These athletes, when it came to the Olympics, were thrust into the world's spotlight, if only for a relatively short period of time. In that context, the Olympic athletes from all over the world were focused upon in celebration of the world coming together for competition in different games. Most of the world was tuned into this event to cheer on their country's teams. Today, we're going to be talking about an individual who will be revealed at a point in the time 
in the future with the spotlight of the entire world upon him, but the world will not be cheering on friendly competition of Olympic Games. The whole world will be cheering him on for a much different reason. This individual is most well known by the term the Antichrist. And I don't think any other person in history and the plan for the world has caused so much controversy. The reason for the name Antichrist, according to one Bible scholar, is that he will set himself up as the false messiah or the counterfeit Christ. That's where the term Antichrist comes from. There's so much attention given to this individual that several figures all throughout history have been given as possibilities for this person, but none have met all of the biblically prophesied qualifications for this person. As such, this person has yet to be revealed on the world stage yet. And as part of, of this mini-series on this person, we will touch on when this will happen. This morning... This is going to be a little different this morning. This morning we need to put our thinking caps on for this one today. We're going to be delving into a lot. We won't have any points this morning. You know I, I usually have two or three points that we go through. We won't have any of those this morning. But we're going to go over a lot. So for many of you, this may be the first time hearing about any of this. And if you're a note taker, today would be a good day to take notes. One of the purposes of this mini-series is for us to get at least a basic understanding of the information in Scripture given in connection with this person so that we don't get wrapped up in purposeless speculation as to who the next possible Antichrist is. Another purpose is for us to be able to confidently relay this information to those we know who have not yet given their lives to Jesus. And yet another purpose is to see what all of this means for us as believers in Jesus now in the current theological and historical age we're currently living in. This topic may seem random to us at this point in our sermon series, but as we're going through the second letter from Paul to his Thessalonian brothers and sisters, it wasn't at all random to them. In fact, as we'll see in our passage this morning, Paul has already explained this information to them. This isn't coming out of nowhere or left field for them. He's just reiterating what he's already talked to them about. Not only that, but the information that Paul includes in this morning's passage is the only place in Scripture where this specific information is discussed. So what does Paul reiterate to the Thessalonian church, and what can we learn from his teaching? We're continuing on in 2 Thessalonians, so if you brought your Bible with you today, please open to 2 Thessalonians. It's in the New Testament. If you didn't bring your Bible with you, that's perfectly fine. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. I'd also like you to turn to 2 Thessalonians. Again, it's in the New Testament. If you're having trouble finding it, just look it up in the table of contents. There's no shame in that. Uh, we're in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and I want all of, the, all of us to see this together. We're beginning in verse 3, and this is what Paul says. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Paul starts out this verse by saying, Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless something else happens first, right? Which we'll get into next. But before we get into that something else event, what is Paul referring to when he says, 
It will not come unless. What is he referring to? In the context of the original Greek, the it that Paul is referring to is the day of the Lord that he refers to at the end of the verse right before this, in verse 2, at the end of verse 2. If you remember from last week, what were the Thessalonians so afraid of that many of them were quitting their jobs, disbanding the church, and running for the hills? What were they afraid of? That they were already in this horrific end times period that was prophesied about in the Old Testament as the day of the Lord or the great tribulation. Paul thought that he had cleared all that up in his first letter to them when he described that the whole purpose for the day of the Lord was for God to pour out the culmination of his wrath on the world to pay it back for all of its evil. When we covered this, this before, when we looked at 1 Thessalonians chapters 4 and 5, we saw this purpose explained clearly in Isaiah's prophecy concerning this time period when he said, For see, the day of the Lord is coming, the terrible day of his fury and fierce anger. The land will be made desolate and all the sinners destroyed with it. The heavens will be black above them. The stars will give no light. The sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will provide no light. All apocalyptic language here. I, the Lord, will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their sin. I will crush the arrogance of the proud and humble the pride of the mighty. That's the whole purpose, the whole point of the day of the Lord or the great tribulation. And since the day of the Lord will be a culmination of God's wrath, and since, as we looked at last week, one of the major things uh, those who have based their salvation on Jesus' sacrifice and resurrection on their behalfs have been saved from is this culmination of God's wrath. And because of that, they will be rescued from it. This rescue, as Paul has already explained to the Thessalonians, will take place in the form of the rapture, when Jesus partially returns to take up with him all those believers who had previously died and those children whose consciences did not allow for them to either accept or reject God who had previously died, and all those who are still alive at that point. One other note on this subject, on the subject of the rapture. Many believers struggle with the possibility that those who were not buried, so those who have been buried for thousands of years, those who died at sea or were burned at the stake for their faith or died in a house fire or uh, made the decision to be cremated, that they will not be raptured. They struggle with that. And as one Bible, uh, Bible scholar points out, in Paul's discussion of the rapture in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 15, that he, Silas, and Timothy are describing the program of the rapture from direct revelation from Jesus himself. He said, and I, I added this emphasis. We tell you this directly from the Lord. We who are still living when the Lord returns will not meet him ahead of those who have died. Furthermore, this scholar points out, do you not think that the same God who created the entire universe, ex nihilo, that is Latin for out of nothing, has the power to reassemble the bodies of all those who have died, no matter how they died, before his partial return? Do you not think that Almighty God, the God who created the entire universe out of nothing, can do that, 
no matter what form your body uh, became when you died? Obviously, yes, he can and he will. Truly, 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 these are words of comfort, as Paul notes in 1 Thessalonians 4.18. So you don't have to struggle with that thought anymore. That obviously, no matter what form our bodies were in when we died, God can and will reassemble them when he partially returns for us as believers. What follows in our passage this morning, starting in verse 3, is Paul's further evidence that the world had not yet entered the Great Tribulation. He's saying, furthermore, don't be deceived by anyone, whoever they claim to be, like we talked about last week. Because of this additional evidence, which again, I already explained to you while I was still with you. So what is this additional evidence, the the further evidence? That the day of the Lord would not come or unless what is described here in verse 3 as what? Starts with an A. Apostasy comes first. Now what does Paul mean by the apostasy? Firstly, we have to understand what the word apostasy actually means. Because no one really uses that term anymore these days, right? The word is translated as apostasy in the English only occurs twice in the New Testament. Here in verse 3 and in Acts 21.21. It means a defection, a revolt, a walking away from and is directly related to the word used for divorce. That is a complete separation from something. That's what that word means as translated in the English as apostasy, a complete separation from something, a walking away from something, a defection. There are many differing views of what Paul is referring to here when he says the apostasy. One of these views is that the apostasy is false teaching of the gospel invading the church of Jesus Christ. That is, churches giving up on the truth of God's word. But false teaching has been an issue in the church of God pretty much ever since it was established by Jesus through his, his, his disciples. In fact, right here in this letter, as we talked about last week, Paul is refuting false teaching. In addition, this reference does not line up with the rest of the context of what Paul is talking about here. Another view is that this reference to the separation of of believers from the world prior to this, that that, that this is a reference to separation of believers from the world prior to this, that is the rapture. But again, this doesn't fit the context of what Paul is overall describing here. The overall context that Paul is describing here is that of the revealing of the Antichrist as it specifically pertains to the day of the Lord. As such, the apostasy or departure that is described here, most likely will not happen until after true believers in Jesus have already been raptured and the world is already in the time period known as the Great Tribulation. This timeline of the apostasy is directly connected to the revealing of the Antichrist. You see that the two events are immediately connected here in Scripture. The apostasy happening with the revealing of the Antichrist. We'll come back to this in a little bit. This man is described here as the man of lawlessness and the son of destruction. I know we've already gone over a lot. I need you to hang with me now. He is the the son of destruction because he has already been condemned to eternal destruction. This man is also described in the book of Revelation as, anybody know? The beast. 
in the book of, Reve- uh, of Revelation. Revelation speaks about the beast and his false prophet when it says, both the beast and his false prophet were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. That is the eternal destruction that has already been decided for this person, that he is, he is headed for eternal destruction. He is the man of lawlessness because he will set himself up completely counter or anti God's law and specifically God's law as fulfilled in Jesus. In other words, he will not follow God's laws and instead he will set up his own system of worship and religious laws. What or who will this new system of worship be centered on? Himself. That's what it will all be centered on. That's what Paul describes next in verse 4 of our passage this morning, chapter 2. Who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Eventually, this man will denounce every other so-called God or deity that anyone in the world worships and demand to be worshipped himself as God. How in the world is everyone in the world who worships different gods going to let that happen and go along with that? It's an honest question. We have a clue back in the prophetic book of Daniel. In Daniel, the prophet describes a vision he's given where, so you are to know and discern. Again, hang with me. That from the issue of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. We're going to explain all this. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the Prince who is to come will destroy the city and its sanctuary, And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he, this prince that is to come, will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction. One that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. That all makes perfect sense, doesn't it? I don't have to go any further than that. We can close our Bibles and and leave now, right? We can get a good idea of what the first part means of 62 weeks in connection with the cutting off of the Messiah from his people. And once we understand that, that will help us understand the second half of this prophecy as it refers to the prince who is to come, the anti-Messiah. Firstly, we know that the second half is referring to the same person that Paul is talking about in our passage this morning because he's also referred to in Daniel as the one who will have complete destruction poured out upon him. Read that at the end. Even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed. It's already been established. That's what's going to happen to him. So we're talking about the same person here that Paul's talking about in 2 Thessalonians. Paul gives the title... Uh, a son of destruction. Secondly, as Daniel prophesies, this man is the prince of the people who will destroy Jerusalem and its sanctuary or temple. That's what we read here in these verses. Yes, when the Romans destroyed the temple in 70 AD, 
Titus's soldiers put honors to the emperor Vespasian, but the rest of the prophecy does not line up with emperor Vespasian or his son Titus. In addition, Daniel's prophecy only points out that it will be the people, notice that, the people whom this prince would come from that would destroy Jerusalem and its temple. Not the prince himself, but the people. In a previous prophecy, Daniel predicts that this will be Rome, which is indeed the empire that destroys Jerusalem in 70 AD, which makes some kind of connection between this man, the Antichrist, and Rome. Now, since the Jewish people saw things in terms of sets of seven, the term week is a set of seven years. Thus, if you multiply all the figures, start off in verse 25, we have seven weeks and 72 weeks. If you add all that up and multiply that by seven, if you multiply all the figures, you have 483 years. According to biblical scholar Gleason Archer, if you take Persian king Artaxerxes' decree in 457 B.C. for the restoration of Jerusalem in the time of distress, which Daniel is pretty clear about here, and add 483 years to 457 B.C., accounting for an extra year passing from B.C. to A.D., around what year do we have the cutting off of the Messiah king from Israel or the death of the Messiah king? We have about 27 A.D. Who cares? Well, if we think of Jesus' birth as happening around 4 to 5 B.C., which seems to fit the historical evidence a lot better, seeing as King Herod died at the end of 4 B.C., then Jesus' public appearance and ministry would have begun around 26 to 27 A.D., and his death, which was directly connected to that revealing of him as the Messiah only a few years later. By that interpretation, the theory of weeks referring to sets of seven years point blank gives us pretty much the exact year of the first coming of Jesus. In this set of seven years at the beginning of it, in fact, so let's, let's go back to the, to the prince of the people who is to come. And we have here, what do we see in the first line here? Make a firm covenant with the many for how long? One week. So if we take this theory of seven years, meaning a week, then the week described here is a period of seven years, right? Everybody still with me so far? Okay. Some of you are. In this set of seven years, at the beginning of it, in fact, which probably initiates this period of seven years, this prince will make a covenant of peace with the many, most likely the leadership of Israel. Daniel next prophesies that this prince, the Antichrist, will break that covenant halfway through. That's what we read. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. He's going to make a break with that covenant. He's going to put an end to the Jewish system of worship. Since Paul is talking about the same guy, he sees in our passage this morning, in verse 4, that instead this guy will set himself up as God himself in the Jewish temple and demand the world to worship him as God. At that point, as one Bible scholar points out, there will be unprecedented persecution against the Jewish people and against any believers in Jesus who put their faith in Jesus after the rapture occurred. 
That's the persecution described in Matthew 24, 21. For then there will be a great tribulation such as not such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unprecedented persecution. And Revelation 7.14, and he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. When Paul says that the Antichrist will be revealed to be who he really is, when he puts an end to the Jewish system of worship, and rather sets himself up to be worshipped in the temple, Daniel says that the Antichrist will do that at the halfway point of this so-called covenant with Israel on the wing of abominations. That's what we read in Daniel. You see they're halfway through and on the wing of abominations. Those abominations, while there have been several in Jewish history, can only line up with one who completely gets rid of the Jewish system of worship and rather completely replaces it with himself as God. Those who don't worship the Antichrist as God will be executed, as Revelation tells us. But again, how will this be possible? We'll get more into this next week. But Paul writes, For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence, so that they will believe what is false. Paul also writes in this letter, this man will come to do the work of Satan with counterfeit power and signs and miracles. He will use every kind of evil what? Deception to fool those on their way to destruction. Jesus said the exact same thing in Matthew 24. For false messiahs and false prophets will rise up and perform great signs and wonders so as to deceive, if possible, even God's chosen ones. That's how the whole world's population will allow and even praise this happening. They will be deceived by signs and wonders that the anti-messiah is really the actual Messiah. And that, right there, the world praising the anti-Messiah as the actual Messiah is most likely the apostasy that Paul is referring to in verse 3 of our passage this morning. The majority of the world's population at that point will defect separate and divorce themselves from any possibility of faith in the true God to attach themselves in worship to the anti-Messiah. Now here's another question. If you go to the Holy Land today, is there a Jewish temple in existence in Jerusalem right now? No. That was destroyed in 70 AD. In addition, the second most important Muslim mosque called the Dome of the Rock sits where the Jewish temple used to sit. So how is what Paul is prophesying in 2 Thessalonians going to happen? He says, point blank, in verse 4, that the anti-Messiah, the Antichrist, is going to take his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Now, the temple of God does not exist at this point. Some people take this metaphorically, but that doesn't match up with what has been given in prophecy. Everything else points to a literal Jewish temple. Is it too much of a long shot that this foretold covenant that we talked about 
in Daniel that the Antichrist will make with Israel will be made, that, that, that will be made between the Antichrist and the nation of Israel will include the construction of a third and new Jewish temple. Do you think that's far-fetched at all? No. So what do we gather from these parallels between the Old and New Testaments? We've combined the prophecies in Daniel in the Old Testament with the prophecies in the New Testament that Paul is writing in 2 Thessalonians. What do we gather from this? That there will be a period of seven years. Since it is during those seven years that the Antichrist will be revealed as to who he really is when he sets himself up as God in the temple, that seven years is how long the Great Tribulation is going to last. Those seven years will be characteristic of events that the entire world has not seen yet. That is why Paul reiterates this teaching that he had already taught them while he was still in Thessalonica before he had to flee. Verse 5, Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? He uses everything that he has just said in verses 3 and 4 as further evidence that they were not already in the tribulation period. That's what they were fearing. When Paul was in Thessalonica, he most likely drew heavily from Jesus' words, as recorded for us in Matthew 24, who directly referred to Daniel, which is why he uses similar language to both of these passages. Therefore, Paul is saying to the Thessalonians, Listen, has anyone made a national covenant with Israel yet for any reason? No. Has anyone set themselves up in the temple yet, declaring themselves to be God? No. Therefore, has the great apostasy of the majority of the world's population flocked to worship him as God? No. Therefore, the great tribulation of persecution that Jesus describes in Matthew 24, that period of seven years as prophesied by Daniel, has not happened yet. You are not in the midst of it yet. Paul was not giving this teaching so that the Thessalonian church knew what to expect. That is, that they were going to have to go through it, and therefore they better know what was going to happen. That's not why he tells them this. No, rather, he was reiterating his teaching, as he says in verse 5, to prove that their fear that they were already in the Great Tribulation was unfounded, that it was not true. Even today, looking back through history, these events have not happened yet. No one has set themselves up in the Jewish temple claiming to be God. There is no Jewish temple yet in order to do that. Therefore, the great apostasy has not happened yet, and we are not in the day of the Lord yet. Since the day of the Lord or the great tribulation of seven years, Paul describes as happening after the rapture, and since the rapture has not occurred yet, the scriptures concerning the time period of the great tribulation have not been fulfilled yet. But as with everything else in Scripture, what do we know? They're going to be. They will be. Likewise, as the purpose for Paul writing this to the Thessalonians was not to prepare them to experience it, but to prove to them that they were not going to, these words are not recorded for us as believers in Jesus to prepare us to experience it. At the same time, however, there's a lot of talk going on around us and around the world, isn't there? about end times things, what the end of the world is going to look like, who the Antichrist is, what the mark of the beast is. 
And we can talk to them about these things and introduce them to Jesus and tell them, hey, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus now, you're not going to have to worry about any of that stuff. As we're moving through the New Testament books and the most likely date they were written in chronological order, we're starting to see a picture form of what will happen in the last days of the world. Some of it is for education and edification, and some of it is to confidently explain to those who have not yet put their faith in Jesus what is going to happen. Perhaps that will be what finally brings them to repentance and commitment to Jesus before it's too late. I told you that you had to put your thinking cap on today. Was I right? I was right. I know we covered a lot today. Next week, we'll continue to talk about what will happen surrounding the revealing of the Antichrist, his deception of the world, and what will be the end result of his deception. As Paul already told the Thessalonians, don't close your Bibles yet. I'm hearing that going on. Don't close your Bibles yet. I'm not done yet. As Paul already told the Thessalonians in regard to the rapture as the rescue instrument, that Jesus will use to prevent his children in this current age from having to experience any of that ultimate deception or persecution, it's the same for us. Did you know that we are actually part of the same theological and historical age as the believers in Thessalonica? Did you know that? We think, oh, they lived 2,000 years ago. But we live in the same theological and historical time period as those believers did 2,000 years ago. It's called the age of grace or the church age. But there will be a day when the rapture, which could happen at any moment, happens and changes all of that and thrusts the world at lightning speed towards the great tribulation and the revealing of the Antichrist. Those of us who have already put our trust in the real Messiah have nothing to fear. As Paul was trying to get across to the Thessalonians, you don't have anything to be scared of. You're going to be rescued from this world before that even happens. But the only reason we have nothing to fear is because of God's grace upon us. It's nothing to do with us or how good we think we are. It has everything to do with His grace upon us and that alone. We have no other leg to stand on. We're not better than anybody else. We have no other leg to stand on other than God accepting us as his children because of what Jesus has done for us. We have no other hope than what our Father has extended to us as a gift, the gift of salvation, not only from eternal destruction, but also from the destruction that will be poured out on the world in the last days. We may experience some kind of persecution, though certainly not the same caliber as what will come over the world during the Great Tribulation. But through it, we remain confident in the same God who saved us. He is in control of our lives, and he is in control of the entire world. Think of it this way. Satan thinks he has this all planned out. He's going to... Raise up this guy that's going to deceive the whole world into worshiping him. But we have his playbook already written out for us. You know, there's different NFL teams that get accused of cheating, of getting a hold of other teams' playbooks and knowing all their plays before the game happens. Well, that's, we have the other team's playbook. We have our enemy's playbook right here. 
because God is already in control of it. As Dr. Jeremiah said in our Sunday school lesson this morning, the enemy thinks he's got free reign over the world right now, but he's only a dog on a leash. He can only go so far. And then he's ripped right back. See, he thinks he's got this perfect plan going on, but we already know what it's going to be. We already know that as believers, we're going to be rescued from before that even happens. But what does that also mean for us? That we have a responsibility. We now have the responsibility to show the playbook to others who don't know Jesus yet. Tell them about what's going to happen. That may be what finally brings them to repentance and commitment to Jesus. God is, in the, God is the one who is in control of the future event, events that will happen in this world. He's the one in control. Satan thinks he's in control, but he's deceived himself. God is the one who is in control of the future events that will happen in this world. He has already sealed our eternal destinies. And because of that, no matter what we go through in this life, we have nothing to fear. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for only a few verses this morning, but in connection with what has already been prophesied about in the Old Testament. We thank you for, for revealing to us what's going to happen. Not for us to be scared about it or to prepare ourselves for it, but to know that we, what, what we will be rescued from and so that we can give that news to somebody else. And that might be what finally brings them to commitment to you. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would be unabashed with the truth. I pray that we would not be ashamed of what we have. We have the truth. Lord, I pray that you would fill us with your boldness and your power to get the word out to those in our families, those we work with, those we live by, so that they don't have to experience this. They won't suffer the same delusion that the entire world will suffer, but they'll, they'll be rescued from it before it even happens. Lord Jesus, remind us that this is your world. You are still in control. Nothing happens without you giving the okay. And let us remain in peace with that. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with me as we close out our